0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34, we'll be reading the uh, the whole chapter. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly toward her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because they had done an outrageous, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father, to, Shechem also said to his father and to her, to her father and her brother, sorry, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters." Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth. All their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you take what is your word and make it effective in our hearts? Lord, teach us and instruct us from what is a a difficult passage. uh, Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law, that you would help us to see beyond the events in history that are recorded here, that we would see the glory of our Savior Christ, that we would see your mercy toward your people, that we would see your love that, that, that never ends, Uh, toward us who are sinners, toward you. Lord, encourage us today by your word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, when we come to a passage like this, we cannot help but think and wonder, God, why is this included in Scripture? If we weren't committed to working through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, this would not be a selection of Scripture that one would pick to preach from. This would be one that would either be omitted (laughs) or would just never even be considered. And so, some of you may never have even read this chapter before. If you've never read through the book of Genesis in your quiet time, and and sometimes the Old Testament books are hard to get through, then you may not have ever realized that a story like this was in the Scripture. This is a, a difficult story. It's a horrific story that Dinah experienced such an abuse and a violation the problem with the story, though, is not just that it's around this one act of injustice that then the story... You know, we're used to our stories bringing resolution. There's no resolution in the story. There's no redemption in this story. Even the attempt at justice was an injustice in itself. In other words, this outrageous thing that was done was only added to by outrageous thing after outrageous thing. It's a stack of outrageous things that we read in this text. It's a numerous injustices that are added into the mix rather than justice being served. We see Jacob is indifferent. He's passive. He's quiet. He doesn't act like a father should in a case like this. The brothers react rather than justice. They act with vengeance. There's deceit. There's more atrocities. And there's a sense of blindness to the sin that was done to Dinah. There's really no recognition except for the brother's anger. There's really no recognition of this sin that was done to her. One outrageous thing after another. Outrage is something that we are increasingly familiar with in our own day. Our culture seems to be continually outraged about different things, uh, to point, uh, to the point that outrage, I think, is uh, losing its meaning. What is outrageous anymore things just continue to increase and multiply and it also almost becomes this cacophony of that's not fair because what happens in an outraged culture is that the voices of those who are simply whining not fair Drown out the voices of those who have experienced true injustice. The voices of those who have been truly abused and taken advantage of. It's as if everyone wants to claim the right to be a victim. And if you're a student of the culture in any way, you know that this is a, this is not just an observation. This is actually a worldview that is being taught or has been taught since the, at least the 1990s called intersectionality. And in a nutshell, intersectionality is the idea that you intersect or you, you, you stack up your, all the points at which you have been oppressed or experienced injustice. And so we have an entire generation now that has grown up not only hearing these things, but now they are teaching these things to the next generation. And the problem with this viewpoint or this worldview is that everyone then becomes a, uh, in a sense competitive to become more of a victim. And the, the result and what we're reaping the fruit of now is that those who truly are victims have their voices drowned out. Those who truly have been oppressed are just mixed up in the loudness of everything else. We're so fixated on outrage. Why is this? Well, We could just boil it down very simply to our pride. We're selfish in who we are. We all want to be, if if we don't want to be the center of attention, because some of us don't want the spotlight on us, that's our personality. Maybe we're a little shyer or whatever. We don't want to be the center of attention like we imagine that word being used at a party or something. But when we're honest, we still want to matter. We don't want our lives to be insignificant. We still want people to care about us, and that's not at all, that's not, completely in and of itself problematic but the point is this when we carry to this out to a place that is sinful it it is it's very simply it's pride it's pride outrage has become so common that every when everything is outrageous nothing is outrageous when everything becomes outrageous nothing is outrageous and what i mean by that is we become desensitized to it all Outrage, no, it, 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 it's, it no longer means what it once meant. It just becomes blah, blah, blah. And in addition to this, we all become desensitized to it. We're not bothered by it anymore. We're no longer shocked by the incredibly outrageous things that happen. You could call it the Jerry Springerization of our culture, that we are no longer astounded by that which is awful. And that's exactly what we see unfolding here in Genesis 34. That the whole issue that, that that starts this episode is never actually dealt with for what it is. What happened to Dinah was truly outrageous. And although two of her brothers seemed to get it, They go out in a way that is even more outrageous, in the sense that they add to it. Not that it was more unjust what they did, but it's it's another injustice, right? It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't bring resolution to anything. Everyone else acts like nothing has really happened. Jacob is quiet. We see no action on the part of Leah or even Rachel just as a mother in the family. She doesn't respond. Shechem and his uh, father act as if some money will fix the problem. We'll just throw some money at it and and, uh, and that will make it go away. The brothers not only act deceitfully and with revenge, but they take uh, circumcision and they, in a sense, secularize it. They use it as a tool of manipulation. Uh, Simeon and Levi move beyond... Simply outraged, they move into this horrendous act of slaughter. The other brothers then join in, looting the town, taking advantage. And in the end, Jacob only seems worried about his reputation or his future and what will happen to him. There's no remorse over what's happened to Dinah. It is a story of not just one outrageous thing, but of many outrageous things. And so as we look in verse 1, we start off by seeing that the the author reminds us who Dinah is. We were already introduced to her, and we were introduced to her before because of this role, this 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 story. She's the only recorded daughter of Jacob. She was born to Leah. There may have been other daughters. There's some speculation in that from other texts. Um, But this is the only one who is mentioned. And we remember how Jacob felt about Leah. What was Jacob's attitude toward Leah from the very beginning, all the way up to this point? Jacob doesn't love Leah, and so you see kind of the fruit of that in the way that he responds to her daughter and the way he acts. Uh, We also see it's Leah's brothers by or Leah's sons, her the brothers uh, of Dinah by Leah, uh, who take up arms. Simeon and Levi are both Leah's sons as well. Verse one tells us that Dinah went out to see the women of the land. And at first glance, there's nothing about that that really strikes us. She went out. She's in a new land. They've recently arrived there. She's curious. She's going to go see what has happened. But there's more to the language here than meets the eye. The language has the connotation that she went out, that she snuck out, that she went out without uh, permission from her parents. And this is supported, and most scholars think this is what Moses had in mind, because traditionally, a young woman of her age would not have gone out without a chaperone, would not have gone out unsupervised. Once young women were at the marrying age, they didn't go out alone. And it's not hard for us to understand why she would have been curious again, new to the area, wanting to meet other people, see other people, understand the culture, and she goes out to see. But we have to be careful here that we don't turn this, what we might deem as foolishness, acting like this, that we don't turn that into some kind of culpability, that we don't say that Dinah got what she deserved. That is never appropriate in the case of abuse, to put the blame on the victim. Dinah didn't do anything to get what happened to her. A lot of well-intentioned people sometimes want to point out someone's wrongdoing in a case of abuse, and this is never appropriate. Dinah uh, may have acted foolishly. She may have gone out without her parents' permission, but there is no way that she merited being violated in this way. What happened to Dinah was categorically wrong. Some scholars, and the reason I'm harping on this is that some scholars have rendered what Shechem did to Dinah as he seduced her. I don't know what translation you have in front of you today, but there is that language that is used. It's particularly in some of the older translations. But this English, he seduced her, is not helpful for us because this is not what happened. It doesn't correctly represent what the text says. What we see happening in the text here is a a means of use of language that we've seen Moses use before uh, of increasing intensity to demonstrate the horror of the act or the intensity of the act. Look in the text. He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. There is no seduction here. There's no guessing what happened. She was a victim of violation of her very humanness. And regardless of her actions, nothing, nothing merited this crime that was committed against her. Well, following this, verse 3 tells us that Shechem's soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, that he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And this kind of throws us off a little bit you know, it makes us wonder. I mean, Moses doesn't elaborate. He doesn't explain why his heart was turned or was it turned or was this manipulation or was this remorse or was this guilt? Well, we don't know what was in Shechem's heart. And it says later that he loved her in the text. But to me, what Moses includes in this, in the, in the next part of the verse, get me this girl for my wife. He goes to his dad and says, get me this girl for my wife. To me, That communicates clearly where Shechem's heart is. There's no awareness of his own sinfulness in the act. In fact, there's, there's actually kind of a dark irony in his word choice because the word forget that he says, get me this girl for my wife is the same word that was used, is translated took to describe his taking her. So there's a, there's a bit of dark irony there. This is not a, this is a description of one who has not understood the gravity of his sin. He sounds to me more like a spoiled son who's accustomed to demanding that his father get him his next possession. Well, in verse 5, we see Jacob come and uh, he's aware now. We're not told how he's made aware, but he fails to respond. And The author adds that it's because the sons were out in the field, but the way it's worded, it's really hard to know if that's what Moses meant or if he was just adding kind of a parenthetical phrase that Jacob kept his peace. Was it because the sons were out in the field or the sons were out in the field? And that's what Jacob did. I tend to think that Jacob was was sinfully passive because we see no other action on his part throughout the text. And then the way that the story ends... And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. It seems like Jacob is just consumed with himself, selfishness, that he's only worried about himself. The sons were in the field, uh, uh, but they, you know, Hamor comes to him. The sons return in this in this para- parenthetical uh, phrase. Uh, Hamor uh, has these demands that he's going to make on behalf of his son. But before he can speak to Jacob, the author interjects that the the sons were indignant. And Angry, and we could add and rightfully so, and then he, he, he says that the uh, the sin of Dinah or toward the sin against Dinah was not just toward her but against Israel. Uh, it was against Israel not to lessen the sinfulness of being against Dinah, but it was against Israel because it was against God. This was a defacement of someone created in the image of God. it was an affront. To God Himself, Moses adds, "For such a thing must not be done." This is an outrageous thing. There's no justifying this act. Well, now as the the sons come back from the field, Hamor now speaks up to them, and he asks them, uh, and and we've seen this before, where the family decisions are often often include more than just the father. They include all of the family. So now the sons are there, and he asks them to give Dinah to his son in marriage. But it's interesting, he leaves out, and we see this throughout the story, they leave out some of the important stuff. For example, here, he doesn't acknowledge that there was any wrong done. There's no apology. There's no indication that what Shechem did was wrong. And then second, they don't acknowledge where Dinah is. And guess where she is? She's in Shechem's house. We see that later in verse 17, that that's where she is. In verse 26, that's where they rescue her from. So being kept against her will. Uh, the, the, these are not guys with good intentions. He then adds to his demand a kind of negotiation in verse 9. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. dwell and trade in it and get property in it. it he's, he's making a deal. He's he's put on his, his salesman tie here and he's pitching his wares to Jacob and his family. But the problem is intermarrying and dwelling with the Canaanites was not an option. God had already told them they were going to be separate, that they were to live separately. And so this is once once again a shortcut for them to live according to the flesh rather than by faith. Rather than trust God to give them the land, this was in a sense a great offer. Right? They're given the offer of citizenship. You know, they're not gonna, they don't have to be sojourners. They don't have to be aliens anymore. They could own property. They would have grazing rights. It was an attractive offer from a human standpoint, but it was not the way of faith. And then Shechem adds, they can ask for any bride price that they want and he will pay it. So here's a bonus. Not only do you get citizenship and the right to live in the land, but now you can be wealthy too. I'll give you whatever money that you want. And so we see this, uh, yet again, another outrageous thing, this temptation to walk according to the flesh. Well, Jacob remains silent, but his sons, of course, do not. The narrator tells us that they answered Hamor deceitfully because of what had been done to Dinah. And at this point in the story, we almost want to cheer for them uh, because we want justice for Dinah, but they are not acting with faith as they should have been. Their blood is boiling, and while we might understand that, we need to understand that when our blood boils, it often blinds us, and this is exactly what is happening. Their, their hearts are becoming deceived to their own anger, and they act with revenge by concocting this plan to trick these Shechemites, as they were, to be circumcised. Well, that's not what circumcision is for. Their plan is, is is rooted in retribution, which is, we find out as the story unfolds, was sinful in and of itself, but this is yet another sin. They, they trivialized the sacredness of circumcision for their own gain, for their own retaliation. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It was not simply a physical act, but was one that was to be conducted in faith. And these brothers were not inviting the Canaanites to join in the faith community. They were not witnessing to the Canaanites. They were simply using circumcision for their own plan. Well, Hamor and his son listen, and they agree to the plan. And as we've seen before, the way a community decision is made, is you go to the gates of the city, that's where the leaders are. We see them do this. And they go and they pitch, that you know, Hamor... He must have been in sales because he's a really good salesman. Everywhere he goes, he he kind of he leaves out the bad stuff and he, he adds in some extra good stuff and really spins it well. In verse 21 and following, we see this happen again, um, that they, they leave out some of the, the negative things and then they add, Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And then it says, and all who went out of the city, the gate of the city that listened to Hamor and his son, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So the plan worked. The leaders agreed. And yet herein is another outrageous thing, that the sons of Jacob had secularized the God-given sign of covenant for their own selfish and vengeful purposes. Well, on the third day, when the men were all incapacitated, Simeon and Levi sprung into action. They grabbed their swords and they went and they killed all the men. We're not told why only these two brothers acted in this way. There were four brothers who were born to Leah and the other two didn't join in. We're not, we're not told why. But after the massacre, after the killing, we see, it says Jacob's brothers or sons, the others joined in in verse 27. And they loot the city, they take everything, flocks and herds, donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And yet we see another outrageous thing. They didn't seek justice with Shechem, but they killed all the men and they plundered the whole city. They were consumed by vengeance and they sinned in doing so. Well, in the final verses of the chapter, we see one last outrageous thing, and that is this of Jacob. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Such a... I mean, we talked about abrupt endings a few weeks ago. Here's an abrupt ending. You know, here the words are going up the screen of chapter 34, and we're like, that was how it ended? Jacob seems to be bothered very little. He hasn't called out the sin against Dinah once. He doesn't call out the sons for their unjust retribution. He doesn't call out the other sons for looting the city. And instead, he sounds more like he's whining about how this would negatively affect him. Jacob seems to care more about how the world perceives him, and this brings to mind the words of the Apostle John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jacob was consumed with what the world thought of him. And then this final question that his sons posed to him marked this sudden end to the narrative. It was a question of justice, right? The sons were still seeking it. They were still thinking of it. And this would be a sad end to the story if chapter 34 was the end of the story. But we thank God that just as in our own lives, when we go through difficult things, whether it is our own sin or the sins of others against us, that it's not the end of the story. And this isn't the end of the story. Maybe the most outrageous thing of this entire account is that God does not sever His relationship with His people. Sin after sin after sin. Not just from Shechem. I mean, that was possibly the most horrendous thing that we read in just this chapter, but it's it's the response. There was no righteous response. It was all injustice upon injustice of the people of God. They should have responded in faith and they should have sought true justice, but they added to the outrageous sin by sinning themselves. And God does not sever his relationship. He doesn't discard them. Instead, he is a redeeming God who reconciles his own to himself. And that is outrageous. That is the, the message of the gospel. It's an outrageous message. It's, it's hope for sinners like Jacob and his sons. It's hope for sinners like me and like you. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before Him. Isaiah 30, 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. First Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. That word of the cross, foolishness to the world, the power of salvation, for us today is spread out in this table that is before us. The bread and the cup that represent the power of God in salvation. This is an outrageous thing. This is something that is incredibly, outrageously good. That a holy God would save us to himself. And so may we, as we prepare to come to this table, be overcome by God's incredible love and forgiveness. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins they are many. His mercy is more. May we see our sin and the power of the cross to deal once and for all with the curse that our sin is. The wondrous love that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse. For our souls. May we come and feast at the table to remember and proclaim the hope that is ours in our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you cause our hearts to be lifted up by the outrageous goodness that is ours in Jesus Christ? Lord, we're reminded in a story like this how horrendous sin is, how Utterly devastating it is. And we're reminded in this account how hopeless we are apart from your saving arm. We see no hope for Jacob and his sons here. We see even no hope for Dinah in healing. Except for who you are. You are Jacob's fortress. You are our fortress. You are our healer. You are our Redeemer. You are the one who takes what has been shattered by sin and you make it whole. And so I pray that for all of us today, we would experience and know the reality of the wholeness that is ours because of Christ. And that as we come to this table, you would bind our hearts up that we would know that in Jesus we are whole. Heal our hearts, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.